Today's Bible reading is taken from the book of Acts, <clears throat> chapter 18, verse 1 to 11. Please turn with me to Acts, chapter 18, verse 1 to 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were ten makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus a worshipper of God. His house was next to the synagogue. <clears throat> Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in the vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. May God help us give full attention to his word and the preaching of his word. Thanks, Pastor. Hi, morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning and to bring God's word to you. Uh, before we begin, should we pray together and ask God to help us? Let's all pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you as a people who are weak and needy. Father, we come uh, seeking your grace. We pray that you would take your word and press it upon our hearts. We, we pray for open hearts. We pray for open ears. We pray for hands and feet that are quick to do your will. Father, we pray for rich blessing to come from your word this morning. Speak to us, we pray. Help us to listen to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, how many of us have gone through uh, job interviews? I think most of us have done job interviews before. What's the question that we dread the most in job interviews? I, I know the question I dread the most is when the interviewer looks me in the eye and asks me stone-faced, so tell me, what is your biggest weakness? You know, then, then we need to think about a, a decent answer that sounds honest and yet doesn't kill our chances of getting that job. So, so, how, right? so how do we answer the question? We can try humour. You know, what's your greatest weakness? Say, dessert. <laughs> or you know, your eyes. You know? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, something, something funny like that. But, but seriously, maybe we try to talk about our strength in a way that sounds like we're talking about a weakness. So let me give you some examples. Maybe you can write this down if you go for another job interview. Uh, my biggest weakness is that I work too hard. 
Or I'll try this one. My biggest weakness is that, is that I demand excellence of myself all the time. Yeah, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> you know, it, it's not easy to speak about our weaknesses, right? Especially at a job interview, we feel that we're under the spotlight. You know, maybe, maybe it's because we are proud. You know, we don't want to appear weak or needy in front of others. You know, maybe we're fearful that if we, if we share a weakness with someone, that person might take advantage of us because they kind of know you know, how to kind of press. You know, maybe we're, we, we don't want to share our weakness because we're anxious. You know, we, sharing a weakness implies that we're not in control, you know, that, that something in our life is not quite uh, what we hope it would be. Right? So we, we're anxious and we don't want to appear, uh, we, we don't like the feeling of helplessness as we share our weakness with someone. You know, and, and worldly wisdom and culture will tell us to put up a brave front. You know, that's why people interview the way they do, right? Because they're trying to put up a good front, a brave front before others. Uh, we, we're told to, to hide our weaknesses and to show only our strength. I think that's what the culture tells us. But the reality is we, we live in a fallen world. I think even, in this, even the events of this past week is yet a fresh reminder that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world troubled by suffering, sin, death. Now, someone described living in this world like, like you know, this, this huge mirror that has been shattered. And, and now this mirror has been shattered and, and we live in the midst of all that broken glass. I think that's a very powerful image of what life in this fallen world looks like. No, every day we live in the midst of broken glass. Weakness is everywhere. We, we see weakness in the lives of our family, our friends. Uh, we see weakness in our own lives. You know, it might surprise us to, to know that the Apostle Paul struggled with weakness as well. You know, this surprises us because we often think about the Apostle Paul as someone who is really strong, he's courageous, he's full of conviction, he's got his life all together. But Paul struggled with weakness, and it's here in this text, in Acts 18. You know, when we first read this text, it, it sounds like a pretty straightforward account of Paul's travels at the end of his second missionary journey. Uh, this, this chapter talks about his travels from Athens to Corinth, then on to Ephesus. And then after this, he, he visits the Jerusalem church in Caesarea before returning to his home church in Antioch, where he stayed for a while. And then the end of chapter 18 records the start of his third missionary journey when he travels through Galatia and Phrygia, kind of strengthening the disciples there, disciples that he had made on his first missionary journey. But, but right in the middle of this chapter, Jesus appears to Paul in a vision. And this is what Jesus says to him. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And you think, what? Paul? Afraid? This doesn't sound like the Paul that we're accustomed to hear about, right? Paul, afraid? Yes, Paul was afraid. You know, listen to what Paul writes about himself in, in 1 Corinthians 2. You know, as he writes to the church in Corinth, this is what he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. You know, this, this, these don't sound like the words of a man who has his life altogether, right? You know, how many times have we said that? I was with you in fear 
and with much trembling. But this was Paul's state of mind as he spent time in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Now, these are the words of a man who was transparent about his weakness and struggles. When Paul arrived in Corinth, he had good reason as well to be discouraged. You know, think, think about his missionary journey so far. What has he experienced? He's faced opposition in almost all the places that he's been on, that he's been to. He was imprisoned in Philippi, threatened by an angry mob in Thessalonica, forced to run away from Berea. He shows up at the Areopagus in Athens and he is mocked. I mean, some commentators say that he, he's mocked so badly that he can't even finish his speech. His speech is kind of prematurely cut short because he's just mocked out of the Areopagus. And then here in Corinth, he goes to the synagogue, he preaches there, and what happens? He's opposed and reviled. Strong word, reviled by the Jews. You know, if, if you're in Paul's shoes, you probably think, gosh, life and ministry are not getting any easier. And I think about Paul in Corinth. You know, he was alone in a big city. He had to leave Macedonia in a hurry because the Jews were hounding him. Paul's co-workers, Silas and Timothy, had to remain in Macedonia to strengthen the churches because Paul had to leave prematurely. So Paul was in Corinth on his own. Now, Corinth was like the London and New York City of today. Right? Huge city, uh, very, very prominent. It was a, it was a cosmopolitan city, a, a melting pot of many different people, many different cultures, people from all different places. It was a great cultural center. You know, nowadays, we, the cities that host the Olympic Games tend to be world-class cities, right? You know, we have uh, Beijing, Sydney, uh, London. You know, the chances of Singapore hosting Olympic Games, you know, I don't know, you know, we're a bit too small. So, Olympic Games are held in world-class cities. Well, Corinth was the place where the Isthmian Games were held. You know, the Isthmian Games were the, for, were the forerunners was the forerunner to the modern-day Olympic Games. And Corinth held this Isthmian Games not just once every four years, but it held it every year. You know, this is how prominent Corinth was in the ancient world. Corinth was a commercial powerhouse, you know, full of rich and influential people. Corinth was also corrupt. It had a reputation for sexual immorality, you know, so much so that to be called a Corinthian, you know, if, if you're not from Corinth and someone calls you a Corinthian, the, the person is saying you probably sleep around a lot. You know, that, that the word Corinthian had those kinds of connotations in the ancient world. Uh, you know, behind the city, there was this prominent mountain. And on the top of this prominent mountain behind the city stood the temple of Aphrodite, the, the goddess of love. You know, not, not nice agape love, probably eros, right? sexual love. And there were about thousands of temple prostitutes that would serve the temple in the daytime and their nighttime jobs was to probably serve the city. Uh, so so that, that was the kind of city that Corinth was. Cosmopolitan, commercial, but also very corrupt. You know, imagine you show up at a city like that on your own and your, your mission brief is to, okay, now go reach this city. <laughs> like, okay, God, where... Where do I even begin? Uh, this is not a small town you're talking about. This is New York City. This is London, Paris. Where do I even begin 
to spread the gospel. Not only was Paul alone, but he also needed money. <laughs> you know, as far as we can tell, if you read chapter 18, this is the first time in Paul's missionary journeys that he found it necessary to support himself by making tents. Uh, probably he had run out of funding. Uh, he could not give himself fully to proclaiming the gospel because he, he needed to work to support himself. So in Paul, if, you're, if you're in Paul's shoes, you might, be, you might be feeling somewhat discouraged. You, know, you, you face difficulties and opposition. You're alone in a huge, challenging city. And you're also low on money. <laughs> if you think about ourselves, you know, don't, don't we worry about the same things as well? You know, similar things. We face difficulties. It could be opposition from others. It could be health condition. You know, we, we struggle with loneliness. We struggle with relationships, you know, and, and money, obviously, you know, that's a no-brainer. We, we always think we don't have enough money. <laughs> I think we can identify with Paul in his weaknesses. I think we, it kind of speaks to us. And, and I think the Bible talks honestly about Paul's weaknesses to help us realize that weakness is real. It's real in our lives. It's real in the lives of the characters in the Bible as well. So that's our first point. We only have two points today. Uh, unlike, so we get a discount from last week. Last week we had seven. So this week you only get two. But I can't promise that the length will be any shorter, so don't get your hopes up. So we are on to the second point. So the reality of our weakness, we've just seen that. Second point, the strength for our weakness. Jesus' presence, His protection, His purpose, and His people. Don't you just love peace? Our weakness is real. But, but the good news for weak people is that Jesus did not come to save the strong, did He? Jesus did not come to save the strong, but He came to save the weak. In fact, Jesus says those who, who think they are strong, those who think they are well, have no need for a physician. But Jesus came to save those who know their weakness and who seek help outside of themselves. We don't just live in a fallen world. We ourselves are fallen in sin and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Now, Jesus did not come to help those who could help themselves. Jesus came to save the helpless. And how are we helpless? We've all turned away from God. Every single one of us here in this room and beyond. We've, we've all turned away from God. And, and we've turned away from God not just in our sort of manifested actions, but we've also turned away from God in our hearts. You know, the, the, the parts of our lives that no one else can see except God alone. We've, we've turned away from God in those secret recesses of our hearts as well. And God is holy and, and we're not. And because God is holy and we're not, we deserve His rightful judgment against us because we've turned away from Him. We, we are helpless in the face of our greatest enemies, sin and death. You know, but, but hear these amazing words from Romans 5. You know, you know the passage? It's a familiar passage. Hear these words from Romans 5. While we were what, still weak, you know, you got to let that sink in a bit, while we were still weak, you know, it doesn't say while we were kind of pulling up our bootstraps, while we were trying to make an effort, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say while we were trying our best to come to God. No, it doesn't say that. 
What does it say? While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, Christ died not for those who were trying to help themselves, but Christ died for the ungodly. That's us, if we believe in Him. You know, Paul goes on to say in Romans 5, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, and though, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is for the weak, not for the strong. Jesus took our sin on Himself, dying in our place and rising from the dead so that we can receive new life and be made right with God. You know, th those are the precious truths that the Reformation uh, sort of recovered for the church. We can be made right with God by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's why we need to hear about the Reformation because it reminds us of these precious truths of the Gospel. And now Jesus invites all of us to, to come to Him, not in our strength, but to come to Him in our weakness, to trust in His saving power, to find our strength in Him. Let's be honest. You know, we, we are more sinful and weak than we realize. You know, we just, get to, you know, just have to get that out of the way. You know, we are more sinful and weak than we realize. But, it, but this is why the gospel is such good news because we, if we are in Christ, we are also more loved than we could ever imagine. And this is the, the good news of the gospel. We are more loved in Christ than we could ever imagine. You know, if, if this gospel has truly taken root in our hearts, you know, if, if, if the gospel has really come home to us, then we will see our community as a place for the weak, not for the strong. And, and we are strong only because of Jesus Christ. You know, if, if we see ourselves as a community for the weak who are strong in Christ, you know, what does that make us? It makes us turn away from pride, makes us turn away from self-righteousness. It makes us turn away from legalism, from, from any self-sufficiency that we are fine on our own. If, if, if this gospel has come home, it makes us humble, compassionate, gentle with one another. We'll be patient with one another. Why? Because we understand that we are all weak and we all struggle with weakness, and we all need Jesus. And you know, this will change the way we interact and love one another. And we'll not only offer help, but, but we'll also ask for help. <laughs> I think sometimes for us, for some of us, it's easier to offer help than to actually ask for help. But if we understand that Jesus comes to save the weak, then, then this kind of gives us that, that freedom and that confidence to actually ask, hey, help, <laughs> I need help. Jesus, help me. Can, can you help me? Right, we actually will ask for help. In fact, you know, how can we bear one another's burdens if we won't first admit that we have burdens too heavy to bear ourselves? Right, we, we can't obey Galatians 6, 1 and 2 if we won't admit that we have burdens too heavy to bear ourselves. Now, there will be times when we feel like giving up, you know, just like Paul was thinking of calling it quits here in Acts 18. 
Therefore, Jesus speaks to Paul in his weakness and urges him, what does he say? Go on speaking, don't be silent. You know, Paul was probably tempted to stop preaching the gospel. Wow, you know, that's serious. So Jesus has to come to Paul and say expressly, go on speaking. Don't stop. Don't quit. Don't give up. You know, Jesus doesn't just kind of tell Paul, hey, suck it up, you know, get on with it. No, Jesus doesn't just command, but Jesus enables. I mean, that, that's the kind of saviour that we serve. And, and Jesus assures Paul of his presence. What does he say? I am with you. I am with you. you know, that recalls the words of the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28. I am with you always to the ends of the earth. Jesus is Lord, but He is no tyrant. You know, the words, I am with you, these are relational words, right? These, these are not words of just command, but these are relational words. These are relational words from the one who invites us to draw near to Him. Indeed, the one who has first drawn near to us. These are the words of relationship. He has drawn near to us and He invites us to come to Him and to find rest for our weary souls. If we have believed in Jesus, then we can be assured that this Jesus is with us. You know, he's committed himself to us in, in a covenant relationship that can never be broken. Never be broken. We, we're safe in this relationship because Jesus is ours and we are His. We can go on speaking and not be silent because we have the confidence that He is ours and we belong to Him. You know, it, it's like a the, the one, one illustration of this is like a marriage. You know, healthy marriages need what? And security. Right? When you have trust and security in marriage, both husband and wife in a marriage, they thrive. Right? They, they, they love each other. They, they serve each other with complete freedom. There's transparency. There's honesty. There is uh, true dependence on each other. And this is the kind of relationship that we have with Jesus. It's a relationship of perfect trust, of perfect security because He is ours. And this gives us the freedom, the confidence to serve with abandon because we know that we are safe with Him. This is motivation for us to go on speaking and not be silent. Now, Jesus promises Paul also His protection. What does He mean? You know, it's important to be clear about what God is promising here to Paul. No, God is not promising Paul that his life and ministry will be free from trouble. You know, remember when Jesus called Paul in Acts 9, he said, you know, I will show him, that's Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So when Jesus says that to Paul that I will protect you, it, it doesn't mean that Paul will now have a trouble-free life. But rather Jesus is promising Paul that, that he will be with Paul in the midst of his weakness and struggles. You know, there will be times when we feel as if we are in the valley of the shadow of death. You know, but Jesus says to us, hey, we, we don't walk alone. We don't walk alone in the darkness because Jesus is with us. You know, as the psalmist says, you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So here Jesus promises Paul that no harm would come to him through any opposition or attack in Corinth. You know, and Jesus does keep his word. You know, in verse 12, uh, the Jews make a united attack on Paul. They, they haul him before the Roman proconsul Gallio. And then they accuse Paul of spreading an illegal religion. You know, an illegal religion is a religion that was not 
endorsed by the Roman authorities. It's a bit like a, a cult, so to speak, that the Roman authorities don't recognize. So they accuse Paul, hey, you know, this guy's not Jewish, he's, he's forsaken Jewish ways, he's teaching us an illegal religion. And imagine if, if, if this is true, then this will have devastating consequences on the spread of the gospel. The Roman Empire will be forced to kind of clamp down on the spread of any illegal religion in its empire. But, you know, think, think, think about what happens. In this moment of great danger, Christ intervenes, right? You know, before Paul even speaks, right, you know, the, the, text, is, the, text, is quite, the text is quite telling, you know, as Paul was kind of opening his mouth to say something in his defense, Gallio kind of interrupts, right? Gallio says, hey, this has nothing to do with Roman law, get out of my court, <laughs> right? So, so Christ intervenes through Gallio, this Roman proconsul, and he, he kind of kicks the, Paul's, accuses, Paul, Paul's accusers out of court and says, this has nothing to do with Roman law. Paul, you are free to continue to preach the gospel. I mean, you, you see God's protection of Paul here in these verses. Jesus also assures Paul of his purpose to save many in Corinth. Jesus says to Paul, hey, go on speaking because there are many in this city who are my people. You know, what, does it mean? what does it mean when Jesus says that? Many in this city who are my people. My people refers to all those who have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And God has a people like that scattered in Corinth. And Paul's job is to preach the gospel in Corinth so that God will use that to bring these elect to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the good shepherd sent by the Father to gather these sheep. And now this good shepherd is using Paul as his instrument to gather his sheep. And, and if it's God's idea that there will be this sheep, then you can be sure that God will bring these sheep into his fold. God will save his people. And, and, and Paul can be confident that because, because God will save his people, Paul can be confident that there will be growth. There will be fruit from the gospel because Jesus will ensure it. What does this mean for us? God has a people among our friends, among our family members. You know, God has a people right here in the neighborhood of McPherson. God has a people in our schools. God has a people in our workplaces. You know, God has sovereignly chosen a people for Himself. So we can go on speaking and not be silent because we, we can trust that the God who is sovereign in choosing a people for Himself, the God will also bring these people home. The God will bring these people, that God will bring these people to Jesus. And we can speak with the confidence that God will fulfill and accomplish His purposes. You know, God will save His people. We can trust Him. We can go on speaking and not be silent. And Jesus has not only purpose to save His people through Paul's preaching, but Jesus has also graciously brought His people into Paul's life. Now, this chapter mentions a number of people in, in Paul's life that God has brought into his life. And we see Aquila and his wife Priscilla. There's Silas and Timothy. There's Titus, Justus. There's Crispus and Apollos. Quite a, quite a few names being mentioned in this chapter. You know, we, we tend to think Paul. We tend to think of Paul and missionaries as 
kind of mavericks, right? I think that's the kind of common understanding of missionaries. The missionaries are kind of mavericks. They are independent, so independent-minded people who kind of go off, uh, do their own thing, blaze their own trails. I mean, sometimes we think of missionaries that way, right? This guy who shows up alone in the middle of nowhere and just starts preaching the gospel. But actually, that's not the New Testament model of missions. You know, you notice in this chapter that Paul did not work alone. You know, if, if you read the rest of the New Testament, you, you find that Paul never works alone. Just read Romans 16. It's a long list of names, men and women, that work with Paul in his ministry. Uh, Paul was sent out. He didn't go out on his own. Paul was sent out by a church. And as he went out, he planted churches. You know, he would preach the gospel, gather believers and then he would gather them into a church. He gathered churches. And then he, he also partnered with Christians from various local churches. Some he planted, some he did not plant, but he was partnering with Christians throughout the empire while on his missionary journeys. Paul was no maverick. He was no independent-minded person who went off to do his own thing. You know, what's, what's true for Paul is, is also true for our Christian life. Biblical Christianity is lived out in community. You know, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian in the Bible. We can't grow alone. We can't grow without other people. Believers belong to local churches because this, this, you know, this place, not this building, but this place as in this community is where discipleship takes place. This community is where growth and encouragement and strength is given by God. This is the place where we normally uh, give and receive encouragement from one another. You know, have you ever thought about how Jesus is with us? You know, I mean, the spiritual answer is yes, you know, He's with us by spirit. <laughs> yes. But have you really thought, how, how is Jesus with us? How, how is Jesus with you? you know, he's with us by His people. I think sometimes we, we diminish the importance of that, right? But Jesus is with us by His people. And that's not surprising because how are His people described? The, his people are the body of Christ. So, so do you want to know Jesus' presence more and more in your life? Then get to know the body more and more. Get to know His body, you know, get, kind of get connected to His body more and more because this is how, this is how the presence of Christ comes to us. It's through the body of Christ. The normal Christian life is, is lived in community of the local church. This is a place where we encourage one another. This is a place where we build one another up. Uh, you know, I want to quote from President Halima Yaakob. <laughs> you know, you all know the tagline for her campaign, right? What? Do good and then what? Do together, <laughs> right? You know, you quibble about the grammar of that, but anyway. But do good, do, do together. I mean, that, that's a, actually, that's a really good uh, motto for the church, right? You know, do good, but don't do it alone. Do, do together. This is what the normal Christian life should be. You know, God calls us to, to strive to build these kinds of spiritual friendships with one another. Why? Because God uses His people to strengthen us. And God uses us to strengthen others as well. You know, in, in times of trouble, you know, in times of maybe difficulty, in grief, in sorrow, in sin, you know, oftentimes in those times, the, 
the temptation is to pull away from community. You know, have you ever experienced that? I, I've experienced that in my Christian life. You know, when things are not going well, I kind of feel, okay, I need to take a step back and sort things out before I come back into community. Actually, that's terrible. Why? Because we need community. It's precisely in community that our weaknesses are strengthened. So if you're struggling, if you struggle with disappointment, with, with discouragement, with despair, if you struggle with sin, don't pull away, but instead, connect even more to community. Obviously, you want to be wise about it. You know, talk to people you trust, but, but kind of connect to community because that's where God strengthens us. And this, this is true for Paul as well. You know, Jesus encouraged Paul through all these people that he brought into Paul's life. So let's, take a, let's, let's end by taking a closer look at Paul's friends, Silas and Timothy. They were Paul's co-workers. They remained in Macedonia to strengthen the churches. And Paul wasn't able to do that because he had to run out of town. But Silas and Timothy, they were there. They, they strengthened the believers. They continued Paul's work. And then they came to Corinth. And when they came to Corinth, it's, prob- it's probable that they brought with them a financial gift from the Macedonian Christians for Paul. You read about this in so, Philippians and some other parts kind of scattered about. But they brought a financial gift from the Macedonian churches to Paul. And when they arrived, they gave this gift to Paul. And then Paul was actually enabled to devote himself completely to the work of the gospel. He didn't have to rely on tent-making as much. Then you have Titius Justus, who was a Gentile who attended the synagogue in Corinth. And he became a Christian through Paul's preaching. And what did he do next? Yeah. He, he generously opened up his home to allow Paul to use as a base for ministry. Right, because Paul was kicked out of the synagogue. Right? They refused to let Paul preach at the synagogue. But Titus says, hey, don't worry, you can use my house. And where was his house? Right next to the synagogue. Ooh. <laughs> you know, that, that must have been kind of touchy and sensitive. But you can see Titus' uh, commitment and courage. Right? He says, hey, don't worry, you can't preach next door, come over here. Preach in my house. So Paul had, a, Paul had an ongoing base for ministry because of Titus' generosity. In fact, some commentators say that uh, this Titius could be the Gaius. You know, Roman names usually have like three words. Uh, so it's Titius Justice and maybe Gaius is the third name. So they say this Titius might be Gaius who's mentioned in Roman, in Roman 16 as the host of the whole church in Corinth. So he was using his house as a base for the church. The church met in his home. Probably had quite a large home. Then Crispus is also mentioned. Crispus was one of Paul's first converts in Corinth. And Paul mentions baptizing Crispus and Gaius in 1 Corinthians. And the conversion of Crispus must have been so encouraging to Paul. Why? Because Crispus was the synagogue ruler. That must have been tremendously encouraging. You know, not all the Jews rejected the, the gospel. There was this synagogue ruler who actually became a follower of Jesus. Now, then you have Aquila and Priscilla, who were a married couple that Paul met in Corinth. You know, and the text says that they were in Corinth because they were kicked out of Rome. The, the Roman emperor Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And this was probably due to some unrest between Jewish Christians and the, and the rest of the Jews. So Aquila and Priscilla, who were Jewish Christians, were forced to move to Corinth because of their faith. You know, and you think this, this, this would have been terrible if you were Priscilla and Aquila, right? This would have been a terrible thing to happen. But you see God's sovereignty in working through that, in bringing them to Corinth, and that's where they met Paul. 
So, so God even sovereignly uses difficulty in Priscilla and Aquila's life to bring them into Paul's life. It's just amazing to think about. Like Paul, Aquila and Priscilla were also tent makers. And when Paul needed to support himself, they provided him with a place of work and a place to stay as well. And this, this couple became trusted co-workers to Paul. They, they're good examples of what it means to seek God's kingdom first. You know, they were willing to sacrifice personal comfort, convenience. They were even willing to move to another city with Paul for the sake of the gospel. In our, in our passage, verse 18 tells us that they left Corinth with Paul and settled in Ephesus. You know, what's interesting with Priscilla and Aquila was that they, they were not full-time missionaries. You know, they were simply Christians seeking to be faithful to the gospel. And if God called them to move to another city, they, they would just move to another city. And they picked up their work as tent makers in another city. You know, I know a number of Christian friends who have relocated for the gospel's sake. You know, many of them are not full-time gospel workers. They're not missionaries, they're not pastors. But they have moved, some of them have moved to this part of the world to either plant a church or strengthen an existing church. Some friends I know have moved to the Middle East to strengthen and, uh, or help plant existing churches. And these are not, again, these are not full-time Christian workers. What they've done is that they have simply looked for jobs in those other cities. You know, they, they, they just look for job opportunities and then just move their whole family to those cities. And some of these friends of mine, they have left a lot behind. You know, they've left promising careers behind. They've left comfortable lives behind. You know, they come from comfortable, developed countries. And then some of them have even moved with their young children. You know, some, some young families are a bit antsy. It's like, oh, what? Move with a two-year-old? No, but these have moved with their young children. Two-year-old, three-year-old. Some have given birth to new children in those cities. You know, what, what possesses them to leave all these things behind and move to difficult places? I think it's because of their love for Jesus and their love of the gospel. They've just decided to give their lives first to Christ and the gospel, being part of His work somewhere else. You know, our, our reasons for moving to other places oftentimes look no different from the world, right? You know, why do we move? We move for a good school. We move for a better job. We move for a more comfortable, less stressful life. I mean, perhaps not, nothing wrong in those reasons. But what if we move for the gospel's sake, right? What if we move because we are first and foremost concerned about the growth of the gospel somewhere else? If God calls us to move somewhere else for the gospel's sake, like Priscilla and Aquila, will we go? Even if this move is just to move to kind of speak to your neighbor across the corridor, will we go? Will we move? You know, notice, another thing to notice, notice how Priscilla is mentioned first in verses 18 and 26. This is quite unusual. You know, first Paul talks about Aquila and Priscilla. Then after that, the order is switched around in the rest of the chapter. It's Priscilla, then Aquila. You know, I, I think Paul is trying to tell us, or rather Luke, as he writes this, he's trying to tell us that Priscilla was an equal gospel partner with Aquila. You know, Pris Priscilla as the wife wasn't just a passenger kind of along for the ride, but, but she was an equal gospel partner with Aquila. Like both of them were doing faithful ministry together. 
I think, I think the application is obvious. You know, husbands and wives, strive to serve God together. I think this is the, the picture of marriage that's given to us by Priscilla and Aquila. You know, whether you're the wife or whether you're the husband, you know, God calls both of you to serve Him together. It doesn't mean that you do exactly the same things, but it does mean that both of you should share a, a, a passion, a common passion for Jesus and the gospel. For those of you who are single, who are in dating relationships, if, you're, if you call yourself a Christian, then, then I would encourage you to, to find someone, you know, find a boyfriend or girlfriend who shares that passion for Jesus. Because you're working towards a marriage where you share that common passion for Jesus and you serve as husband and wife together. So, so you want to kind of prepare the way now as a single, as you look for a potential marriage partner. So while in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila meet Apollos. Right? Another, another name is mentioned. Apollos is a learned man, and this text tells, him that, tells us that he's powerful in the Scriptures, you know, a powerful in the Scriptures man. You know, he spoke passionately and accurately about Jesus in the synagogue. But it also goes on to say that he only knew the baptism of John the Baptist which probably means that Apollos was not aware of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and what happened next, you know, after Jesus' resurrection. So his Bible knowledge was accurate, but it was incomplete. So Priscilla and Aquila, they, they show up at the synagogue where Apollos is preaching, and after they hear Apollos preach, they, they actually take him aside. They say, hey, uh, can, we, can we meet up with you? Uh, we have some, some things to talk to you about. So they, they take Apollos aside and they explain the truth to him more accurately. You know, you know, this, this is what a culture of discipleship looks like among believers. Right? It's about Christians intentionally helping one another to know Jesus better and to follow him better. You know, Priscilla and Aquila, they, they cared enough about Apollos to reach out to him and to say, hey, can we kind of explain the way more accurately to you. you know, that, that's what a culture of discipleship looks like. It's like us being concerned about how each one of us is doing in the faith. You know, it's about us intentionally getting into each other's lives and helping each other to know and follow Jesus better. It could mean reading the Bible together, but it could mean a lot of other things. Writing notes, encouraging each other, giving thanks to God for each other. I mean, so many other things that we could do to help one another grow in the faith. And you know, this Aquila and Priscilla, they did it with a lot of love and wisdom. You know, they didn't confront Apollos publicly, you know, say, hey, you know, you're wrong, <laughs> or, you know, you left out important bits. No, they, 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 they invite him and they speak to him one-on-one. And Apollos, on his part, was humble and teachable. You know, Apollos didn't re- respond defensively to Aquila and Priscilla. You know, this is even more remarkable given that, you know, Apollos, what, he was strong in the scriptures, right? He wasn't a novice. And Apollos was probably a scholar from Alexandria, you know, this, who had a, which had a reputation for learning. Apollos was probably a scholar. Who, who was speaking to him? Ten makers, working class Joes, right? You know, you can imagine if you're in Apollos' shoes, hey, who are you to talk to me, a scholar? I'm a Bible scholar, you know? Like, you guys are just ten makers. <laughs> no, but Apollos didn't, Apollos doesn't respond that way, right? He's, he's open, he's humble, 
He's teachable. And again, this is what the culture of discipleship looks like. Humility, teachability. And Priscilla and Aquila help Apollos to grow in the faith. And Apollos continues to grow in the faith, so much so that the Ephesian church, where Apollos is at, they, they saw his growth and they were happy to commend him to the Corinthian church. You know, Apollos was a great help to the Corinthian church, Acts 18 tells us, both in building up believers there as well as in evangelizing the Jews. You know, thanks to Priscilla and Aquila's investment in Apollos, he went on to benefit many other believers in the Corinthian church. And then he became a, a real help to Paul's ministry as well. Paul talks about Apollos in this way. You know, I planted, Apollos watered. I mean, it's just amazing when you see these relational and ministry connections among these believers here. Many of us have grown in the faith because other Christians have done for us what Priscilla and Aquila did for Apollos. Right? How, how many of you have had just really encouraging encounters with other believers who've helped you grow in the faith? You know, show of hands, how many of you? Oh, don't be shy. I'm sure there are more than that. I think many of us will say that we've benefited from other believers coming into our lives, speaking truth with love and grace into our lives. You know, we, we want to honour the legacy of Dr. Polson. I think Dr. Polson has benefited many by his teaching, by his example. He, he's left a, a precious legacy of changed lives. Lives changed by the gospel. Many, many of you have been directly impacted by his faithful ministry. You know, but the best way to, to, to honour his legacy is not to merely remember it as a thing of the past. But the best way to honour his legacy is to carry it forward. How do we carry it forward? We, we walk in his footsteps. We, we emulate his example because it is a godly one. We emulate his example and we go forth and continue to invest ourselves in the lives of others. And we continue to build on the legacy that Dr. Paulson has left behind. And that, indeed, we, we expand his legacy. Now that is a great way to honour his legacy. It's not only a great way to honour his legacy, but this is biblical. This is what it looks like as we make disciples of others. Now we, God has used people in our lives to help us to grow. I'm sure that He can use us in other people's lives to help them to grow in the faith as well. So in this passage, we've, we've seen Paul's weakness, but at the same time, we've seen God's amazing provision through His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ has come. He's assured Paul. He's, he's spoken strength into Paul's heart. He's assured Paul of His presence his protection, his purpose, and he's even given Paul his people to encourage and strengthen him. You know, this same Jesus strengthens us as well. You know, do we feel our weakness? Do we feel our need? The good news is that we have a God who more than meets us in our weakness and need. So let's come to Him. Friends, let, let, let's come to Him, trust Him, and be strengthened in Him, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together.
Gracious Father, we thank you that you are indeed uh, a God of grace. We thank you for your Son, Jesus, who comes and strengthens us through the Gospel. And Father, we thank you that Jesus is now even present with us by Spirit and indeed by His people. And Father, we pray that you would help us to not try to hide our weakness, help us to not whitewash our struggles, but help us be honest and transparent before you so that we will run to your Son, so that we will find in Him strength and help. And Father, as we, as we come to Him, we pray that you strengthen us to go on speaking the good news of the Gospel, to go on speaking this amazing news that Jesus has come to save the weak and sinners. We pray this in His name. Amen.